Hello to Cape Cod and beyond. I'm your host, Melinda Gallant, for Cape Culture. We're going to discuss a little bit of everything, from music to art to theater to business and anything else we might want to chat about. Maybe even a little gossip on the side. So here we go. so excited to have with me today the fabulous, the talented, and oh my gosh, longtime friend, Dick Golden. Richard Golden is with me, and he's calling in from sunny weather of Florida. Dick, how are you today? I am doing just fine, and I didn't recognize that you were going to be tossing it to me when I heard the words fabulous and wonderful. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder who else is on this program. <laughs> I had to say something, you know. <laughs> well, it's so great connecting with you, Melinda. I mean, we, we've talked before about some of those memories that we share on, on uh, beautiful Cape Cod. I came in uh, 1970, in August of 1970, uh, to WQRC, actually. I was the first program director. They went on the air in August of 1970, and I left after two years, uh, just about two years, in June of 1972 to join that legendary, wonderful uh, Don Moore at uh, WQRC, wow. and left there in 2005. So it was about 33 or so years. and. Oh my I know I never forget them. I mean, it was just such a great place to live and to work. Well, you still have connections to the Cape. You have so many friends here. You still have listeners here, I think. I, I got an email just a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, someone saying I was driving through Hyannis and I had you on the Sirius XM Real Jazz channel and got thinking of when I used to listen to you at WQRC. And, but it, uh, it was a marvelous, marvelous, loyal, engaged audience I found. Uh, listen to the station, and uh, I found specifically to the evening uh, music of uh, uh, the American Songbook and Jazz, they're really attentive and involved. Well, you know what's kind of amazing to me is that through thick and thin, through everything this country we've been through in the last, I don't know how many years, and the number of years you've been away, the American Songbook holds strong every mm. all the time. I mean, all mm. the great artists that are now redoing the American Songbook, you know, the Michael right. Bublé's, the, the Josh Grogan's, but we all know who the originators of the American Songbook were, I think. <laughs> right, right. Well, I... That would be Tony I'm Bennett, I would believe. Uh, yes, uh, without question, he's he's been carrying the torch. I don't think there has been anyone of all the great, great people, Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and Billie Holiday, all the singers, Nat King Cole of the American Songbook, who have been more passionate about articulating the place this music has in the lives of America. And that it's a, it's a gift to Americans, but it's a gift Americans have given the world, these great songs and these great performers. And I don't think Tony Evers on stage before he starts singing, they all laugh without saying, here's a great Gershwin song for you. Or if he sings, I concentrate on you, here's a wonderful Cole Porter classic for you. Or my funny Valentine, here's a Richard Rogers, Larry Hart. He's always making sure to give credit to the composers and to the, ly the lyricist of this great uh, body of work. Well, um, first of all, I want to, I want to talk more about Tony 
But I want to talk about what you're doing now on Sirius XM. What are, what are you doing? What are you, I know you've got a jazz show that we can all listen to. Yes. Uh, actually, in 2002, uh, while I was still on Cape Cod, uh, Mike Friedman, who was then with the George Washington University as vice president of external relations, approached me through actually the intervention of Tony Bennett. He had met uh, Tony, and Tony suggested that Mike call me, and we talked about a project for GW in which we would produce a weekly program featuring this music. George Washington University is located in Foggy Bottom, and although it always promotes itself as being not, four wait, blocks whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not talking about me when you say Foggy Bottom, are you? <laughs> That sounds like a great drink. I'll have another of those 40 Bloody problems, bottom. please. I'm sorry. But Duke Ellington was born in Washington on April 29th, 1899, oh, no four way. blocks from the uh, George Washington University campus. So oh, this program would give uh, the university an opportunity to keep Duke Ellington's musical legacy alive, uh, Washington's most famous native. And uh, so it, it grew from there, and it's uh, on now every week, has been for 20-something years, uh, 20 years this year, actually, on the Real Jazz Channel on Sirius XM. 20 years? 20 years, and it's a oh partnership gosh. with the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, the Duke Ellington School of the Arts, which is in Georgetown. Yeah. And Tony Bennett and his wife Susan established a foundation called Exploring the Arts, Tony Bennett's Foundation for Education in the Arts. Uh -huh. And uh, after they started that, they built the Planck's Not for School of the Arts, a high-tech uh, school for the performing arts in Astoria. And they award uh, funding to public high schools for arts programs throughout the country. So it was a very nice, I think, uh, collaboration. And, uh, you know, it's worked out very well. Well, um you know, I mean, it's it's amazing to me the connection to all the jazz artists that you have. I mean, I think yeah. you've known not the not the ones that were born in the eighteen hundreds necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> that would make you too old. However, you do know so many jazz artists. Uh, Dave Brubeck, um, obviously Tony. Um, well, you know, you know I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you mentioned Dave Brubeck. David Warren uh, Brubeck and Michelle Obama received honorary degrees from the George Washington University in 2010. And the commencement is on the National Mall right below the Washington Monument. And it's like a pageant. I mean, about 30,000 people there. And my charge that weekend, several things, uh, but one of them was to be sort of the companion for Dave and Iola. Rubeck and Dave's manager, Russell Gloyd, and uh, it was just terrific. We had some wonderful moments on Friday and Saturday. He was on campus, and wonderful. when it came to Sunday and the uh, commencement, uh, he made sure he got his regalia on, and he and I were standing around, and he was I was going to take him up the back way. He wasn't going to process. He was 89 years old, and he, I was going to take him up the back way onto the stage and very discreetly so the audience wouldn't notice and as we were standing there and I was ready to bring him up he looked around and he said Dick am I the oldest guy here today <laughs> and uh, you know all these incredibly handsome and beautiful graduates in their regalia and sure. I said well you know Dave it, it actually in a way I said you're probably one of the youngest people here if you were measuring a person's spirit you've got to be one of the <laughs> youngest people we have here 
And I said, but you know, Dave, I'm not really good at math, but I was crunching the numbers the other day. And I was thinking when you were 20 years old in 1940, and you had an opportunity to meet a 90-year-old person, that 90-year-old person could could have said to you, you know, I remember when Lincoln was assassinated. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, please don't tell me that. <laughs> That's great. So it's all a matter of a state of mind. And, That's true. Uh, you know, and you learn so much from these masters. You know, they're just, uh, uh, they're just amazing. Their lives have been dedicated to creativity and to lifting the human spirit through their gifts. And so they, I think, hold a very, they, they each contain so much wisdom, I think, for that we all can learn uh, something well, from. Well, I'm going to say that you have a lot of stories and a lot of wisdom about some of these uh, fabulous um, songwriters. Um, you know, you know little bits and pieces about Cole Porter and and so many others. Um, the, off the top, and this is off the top of your head. I know it's not quite fair, but you must think of, be able to think of something uh, about one of them, some little story you could tell us. Well, I think uh, well, let's, the summer of 1937, I had this discussion recently with someone. Uh, it was an incredible year. It's July 1937, and the headline in the New York Times and all across the country was in 1937, in July of 1937, composer George Gershwin, 38 years old, dies of cerebral hemorrhage in oh. California. What? Uh, the Rhapsody in Blue, Forking and Bess, I've Got Rhythm, uh, that George, George Gershman, most vibrant, powerful, present forces in American music at that time is gone suddenly before he's 40 years old. So now that's, that's July, and the country is like processing that, those who are in tune with the music. We have to add parenthetically, uh, Melinda, that at that time, that was the music of the day. Oh, sure. That was the popular music of the day. Sure. So everyone knew who he was and what he had contributed, what he had created up to that point. So that's July. And then in October of 1937, the same year, almost the same season, the headline is that Cole Albert Porter, is severely injured in a horse accident on Long Island. The oh horse he was riding reared up and fell, collapsed, broke all the leg, uh, bones in his legs, and he was a, a, a paraplegic for the rest of his life, uh, for another 40 years or something. Yeah. But through all of that pain, he wrote all of that great, uh, great music. Wow. So there are so many stories like that that I think they, when you listen to one of the songs, when you listen to Frank Sinatra singing, I've got you under my skin, a night and day, a Cole Porter song. It kind of adds a certain level of appreciation that might not have been there before. Now tell me, Dick, who was your first person, uh, famous person, maybe in jazz or, or whatever, that you ever interviewed? Uh, I was uh, barely out of high school, and it was in 1963, and it was, was at John... I was but a mere child back then. <laughs> <laughs> but it was at, at, at the Hampton Beach Casino in New Hampshire, and I was working my first radio gig full-time mm -hmm. at WBBX in Portsmouth. Mm -hmm. And I had the great, great opportunity of doing an interview with Count Basie, William James Basie, who, with his band, was appearing at the Hampton Beach Casino wow. 
And I was so nervous. I had a wall and a sack tape recorder, I remember. And Basie was known, you know, for an economy, the way he played. He played very few notes, but every single note that he played had significance and meant something. And um, he spoke like that, too. He didn't, wasn't loquacious. He didn't give a long, long, like me, long, long responses to questions. But I noticed that night, and it was kind of in retrospect, only after I got through it, I was so nervous. But I remember listening back to the interview thinking, my God, Basie is talking an awful lot. Every time I ask him a question, he goes on for a paragraph or two. And uh, where are you going from here, Mr. Basie? Well, actually, the band and I are on our way to California to record an album with Frank Sinatra. And we're so looking forward to it. It's the first. And he went on and on. And it wasn't until years later, Midland, I realized this guy discerned my nervousness. But he also discerned in me that I had a true ambition to do a good job and that I really was you know, flattered to be in his company and his orb. Sure. So he was trying to help me through the interview by giving me these long, long uh, answers. And so that was the first one. And it, uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful, unforgettable experience. And of all things, in 1971, when I was at uh, CIB, we did a live uh, interview program on Monday nights, and I hosted this particular one, when Tony Bennett and Count Basie were appearing in concert at, at Dunphy's oh at the gosh. racket club where they used to take the tennis courts out and fill it with seats and have oh concerts in there. Oh my gosh. And it was a, a benefit concert for the Archdiocese of Fall River. And I did a live interview with Basie and uh, Tony Bennett. And who walked in? A Cape Cod friend of both Basie and but Bobby Hackett. Oh, no way. <laughs> I mean, is that like... Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. So... Uh, but I, I just remember, I think what I've learned from that uh, when I talk to young people about doing is just do your homework and, and come up with some questions that they're not asked all the time. Well, what advice would you give to someone who wants to play the piano, Mr. Basie? Right. Find out some interesting facts in your life, things that they had to overcome or sure. uh, causes they may rally around, but they don't get a lot of publicity for that sort of thing. And the person being interviewed will respect you. They'll say, Mom, at least of themselves, this guy took the time to do the research. Sure. And that kind of relaxes them, and they, there's a sense of authenticity about the interview. So that's been great. fun. That's great. Well, you know, you are a radio institution. There's still to this day. And I know that uh, even though you're living in someplace warm and sunny, uh, I won't hold it against you. Uh, <laughs> I promise. But you were, for many, many years, a Cape Cod institution, and you were so involved in the community. I know uh, you and uh, my, myself and Neil Aneary, uh, oh, back yes. in the day, we did um, First Night Cape Cod in the early 90s together for, I guess it was three years. It was quite fun, three or four years. Right. Um, and, uh, you were such a, you were always giving of yourself to the community. And, you know, I think we, we miss that now. That's what, I mean, we miss people like you that did that. They're still out there, but usually somebody has an agenda and I never felt that you had an agenda to do anything other than just to help. So I just want to give you that compliment. Well, I appreciate that so much. And, you know, I think they, they, they characterize it as paying forward and showing appreciation because, uh, look at you're still there. Uh, can you think of another place that's more ideal to live 
than Cape Cod. It's like one of the most beautiful places. And the audience, that great spirit was reflected in the audience. And uh, I also had the great uh, good fortune of, first of all, working uh, for uh, Don Moore, who put QRC on the air in the summer of 1970. And all of those fantastic John Miller and Frank Broadhurst and Dennis Dever and uh, Rebecca Pierce and John Basile, Janet Sheehan, all those people, Donna Groey, uh, sure. a great, great collection of talented, gifted uh, people uh, at the radio station. And then when Don sold the station to uh, Greg Bone, who had been in the sales and marketing department, Greg had that same spirit of giving back. And very early on, right after, I think it was the week that he, he bought the uh, radio station, the uh, folks from the Arts Foundation approached me to set up a meeting with Greg to see if Greg and QRC would help be a corporate sponsor for the first Pops by the Sea. Oh, I remember. Yes. And I thought, gee, I'll be honest with you, you know, Greg has just made this big financial commitment. He's just purchased the station. I don't think, you know, he's in the position, but I will mention it to him and see. I mean, I know he loves the arts and support. And I went to him and without batting an eye, he said, we're in. We're going oh, to do it. That <laughs> so that's great. how it all, that all began. And I know we were before, this was before WFCC went on the air as an all-classical station. So QRC was kind of like looked, we had a mix of music. We had easy listening, heavy emphasis on news, what I was doing in the evening. But we also carried the Boston Symphony Orchestra Saturday evenings and the New York Philharmonic on Sunday evenings. So we had that association. And that evolved, we were very strong supporters of the Cape Cod Symphony Orchestra and Royston Nash in those days. Oh, um, yes, Royston. What a great him. treasure uh, that is, yeah. uh, continues to be on, on Cape Cod. So I just always, I got caught up in, I guess, the spirit of those people who were creating something that just lifted the spirit, the human spirit on Cape Cod, the, the arts. And you had the same thing. You were an artist. I mean, you were a writer and an actress and a lover of music. And you had you I brought that to sing. the. <laughs> <laughs> but to the work we did. And how about in addition to Pops by the Sea, Melinda, uh, Jazz by the Sea with oh. Ivy Sinclair co-producing that. Absolutely. That was wonderful. That was so. And Colleen Hyam, all oh, of the people amazing. that we interacted with were. Right. Just on the, everyone had shared the same vision, and there were no egos. It's live. What can I get credit for doing this? They just they lived there. They wanted to preserve the beauty of that area, you and know, they know the arts is consistent with that. You know what's funny, Dick, is now uh, when people talk about things, you know, that are happening, you know, events or what have you, and. Sometimes I have to catch myself because I will say, well, you know, back in 1987. Right. I remember back <laughs> I remember then. Way back then. And then I realize that's been 40 years. It's pretty scary. Right. <laughs> it, is, it is frightening. And I reflect on it. You know, I've met at GW students from the Cape and have developed some great friendships. You know, we'll have coffee and conversation and talk about those days. But, you know, when I came in 19... 70, I believe the year-round population was 80,000. And when I left in 2005, it was 210,000. And it, it just went through, before I got there, there was the evolution in the 60s of the growth of the Cape. But there seems to be, at the heart of the Cape, this consistency of people who make a choice to live there, who aren't driven 
just to make a million dollars or achieve great fame. It's just that they want every aspect of their life, their work life and their private life, to be spent in a place that gives you such a opportunity to connect with nature, the ocean, the, the softer pace. At least it was. It's, it's, I, I'm sure it's changed in the 15 or so years since I left. But I don't think the caliber of people has changed there, Melinda. It hasn't. It really hasn't. And, you know, I, you know I'm a wash ashore, as I like to call myself, from Ohio. So we made a conscious decision to move here with our family when our kids were um, small. Of course, now they're all grown up and gone off on their own ways. But what's funny is everybody always says, oh, where do they live? You know, California, someplace else. No, no, no. They all live within an hour's drive of us. Because they want to be by the ocean. One of them even lives on the Cape. So it's just it's with their family, obviously. It's just one of the great uh, a great connection I remember having on the Cape was uh, working with Monica Dickens who sure. brought the Samaritans to Cape Cod in the 1970s. And yeah. in 1984, I remember asking her, I said, you know, Monica, I'd love to do a radio version of The Christmas Carol. You know, if you came in and did the narration, I'll add music to it and we'll come up. And she brought in a 1911 version that had been annotated. She made all the marks on the margin of the book. And she did all the voices. And she sat there. I said, I'd like about 45 minutes of of audio, and then I'll have the music and make it about a 56, 58-minute program, and that's how that happened. But in any event, we became friends, and once in a while, we'd have dinner at the Ace of Burst house, and I remember being with her one night. It was like around April, and she was she had been asked to be the commencement speaker at Falmouth High School, and she was very excited and very honored uh, by it, you know, by that uh, the distinction. And she said, you know what I'm going to tell the class, Dick? I've, I've decided. I just wrote it down this morning. I'm going to tell them to get off of Cape Cod as quickly as you can. Get out of here. Leave the Cape because you will not fully appreciate it until you move away. Right, right. But I know you'll be back in 10 years. And she said, because that's the story. So many of the native uh, young people think, oh, boy, this is boring, you know, and uh, Cape Cod, you know. And But they realize it's just it's just the quality of life there is, is just beyond category. Just it wonderful. Is. It is. And before we close, though, I do have to say thank you again. For a long time ago, you invited my husband and I to a dinner uh, which tur- which was a birthday party for Susan Bennett. Only she wasn't Susan Bennett back then. And uh, I had the opportunity to get in close proximity to Tony Bennett. And it was it will always be in my mind the most delightful, magical time of my life to have Tony Bennett be a dinner partner and turn and look at me and go, "So, what do you do for a living?" <laughs> And how about, you know, that, and I'll give you a, try to give you a short synopsis of how that happened. I had been, and Tony had been coming to the Cape since 1981, and this was in the early 90s, I yes, believe, it was. around that it was. time. Yep. And, you know, I said, Tony, sometime, because he loved painting on the Cape, I said, sometime you and Susan have, like, come, not for a gig or an engagement, but some downtime, and a couple, of, and he called, and he said, "You know, Dick, Susan loved that idea, and 
we thought we'd come in uh, September around her birthday. I said, fantastic. I said, I'll get back to you. And I made arrangements for a hotel, the East Bay Lodge, to stay there. And I drove. Uh, they came. I went up to Boston, picked them up at Logan Airport uh, and drove down to the Cape. And then I took them around the Cape. We went to the Kennedy compound. I talked to Dick Gallagher. We went in there for the morning and the breakfast at, uh, there and, and uh, so forth and so on. But he had told me, you know, he said, Susan's birthday takes place that week. And I thought maybe if Dave McKenna was playing somewhere, we could go and, and uh, hear Dave. Well, I said, let me let me work on that, Tony. And knowing that if he did went to a public place, he'd be besieged by people, that sort of thing. So in any event, I went to uh, Janet and Tom Durkin, who owned right. a great B&B. You remember? And oh, were quite. Course. They were over the moon. They said, Dick, you will host this party. It'll be wonderful. I got on the phone and called Dave McKenna and Carol Sloan up in Boston and Donna Byrne and the great Marshall Wood and people like that. They came. And you remember, and Susan knew absolutely nothing uh, that this was going to happen. She walked in. She was so shocked. She was shocked. And Dave McKenna, immediately, the moment she walked in, changed whatever song he was playing and started playing Sweet Sue, Just You. (laughs) (laughs) But how about when Tony got up at, at, at before we ate or after we ate? We had that little right. show, right. and, and he, he sang Indian camera. Summer. Yes, and he held his camera the whole time, and I thought you could put it down, but he held it the whole time. And of course, he was, We were all trying to be so respectful and not, you know, we we're trying to be friendly, but not, but not. But it was know, so relaxed. relaxed because it was so he nice. was just going from table to table, oh, and the next funny. morning I went over to East Bay Lodge to pick them up. I was actually going to bring them to Sandwich, to Sandy Beach, so we could go out on the boardwalk. I wanted him to see beautiful Sandwich, and um, when I went to pick him up at East Bay Lodge, Susan was still in the room getting ready, uh, and Tony was pacing. And he said, "Dick, I have to tell you, I know you've been to a lot of parties." He said, but I have to tell you something. That party last night was one of the best parties I've ever been to. Susan was on the phone with her parents out in California for three hours. There, were, It was a magic. It was a time when time stood still, you know. Yes, it, it was. Uh, it was. Just marvelous. It, it was wonderful. But I have to thank you. I've, I've told the story more than once, I can guarantee you, uh, that Tony Bennett actually asked me what I did for a living. And I, oh, my boy. response was, I run the shopping center up the street. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so. just, you know, Duke Ellington said about Duke was uh, a great friend of Tony's and uh, was about uh, 20 years older than Tony, but sort of a surrogate dad. Tony's father died of uh, a heart condition when Tony was nine. But Duke said uh, one thing about uh, Tony that I thought you can understand. He said, with all of Tony Bennett's greatness, He's never needed a larger half size. There you go. And there, and you saw him up close, and yeah. there he is. What no, do you do? Right. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't thinking about himself at all. He was thinking. About Not him. at all. And Just... he wasn't. And again, we were all being very respectful. Uh, right. Which was which we should have been. However, he was so down to earth, he made it so easy to be respectful, if that makes any sense. You know, you yeah. just, you no, just it was to a, be nice, you know. It's just it was a beautiful party. It was so natural. Everything, yes, the was. food was fantastic. The Durkins had gone over to Nantucket and gotten that fresh seafood oh, we had that wonderful. night. And oh, it was wonderful. It was just a very memorable evening. Yes, it was. And and the other thing, too, is, and, and I, everybody knows oh, what uh, the Bennett family is now dealing with, and I just have to say, too, the, the last concert he did with Lady Gaga, uh, of which I bought the album right away, 
uh, wow. is, uh, was just amazing. Uh, he's an amazing man, and I'm sorry that the family has to go through this, but you know what? He's doing it with such grace and such poise. Uh, he's an example for all of us. He's a one-of-a-kind, that's for sure. He sure is. So, Dick, I'm going to have to let you go. I don't want to Thank you. This go. has been so, <laughs> well, this has been so, if you're fond of sand dunes and salty air, quaint little villages here and there, um, it, uh, it's been a, such a great pleasure, and I feel I'm back on uh, Cape Cod, Melinda, hearing your voice and sharing some wonderful memories. Well, it's I, been my pleasure. Well, I hope we get to do this again. I would like to do this again sometime. You know? We will. I would love that. And Thank again, you. I know you're going to feel really bad that you're down there in the sun. So, uh. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for everything. And I hope you folks enjoy a beautiful 2022. And you too. Thank you. Thank you. Cape Culture, produced by Melinda Gallant, edited and engineered by Beth O'Rourke, and brought to you by WSCR, Sandwich Community Radio.